You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, she's become one of our favorites for a lot of reasons. One is she's unique. The other reason is she's unique. We really like her. Amanda Griffiths is back on the program. Uh, she's got a lot of letters after her names, but mostly she's just real, real smart. How are you, Amanda? Great to talk to you again. I'm doing wonderfully. How about yourself, Andrew? Fantastic. It was good meeting you in person. That was fun. Um, and a lot of our other friends. Let's talk a little elections, though. Uh, you wrote in Real Clear Politics. Here's my deal. Let's just go big picture before we get into the minutia here a little bit and what you wrote. Uh, I'm an actions, not words guy. We've had a couple of elections with contention here now. I don't believe anybody really cares about fixing any of the inherent problems in the election system because we would have fixed them between the last couple of elections and we just keep doing it over and over again. Am I wrong? I am not just the past couple of elections. I mean, we'd have fixed them a long time ago. There are real issues that have to do with election integrity and that have to do with voter access and in particular candidate access, which redounds to voters. If you have a candidate that's representative of a voter base that can't access a ballot, for instance, then you've got voters who are being shut out of voicing their representative preference. So yeah, of course, we would have fixed this a long time ago if it mattered to fix it, but really it's just a talking point. Uh, and it's one of those things that back and forth uh, between our generally uh, bipartisan system or duopolistic system, you have both sides that will continue to, uh, to, to bray about how the other side is stealing elections, the other side is playing dirty, and we all hear this talk about saving democracy. What's interesting is no one actually stops and bothers to say what they mean by democracy. So that's where it gets a little bit murky. And I think that's where we are allowed to not fix the real problems because we haven't defined what the problem is affecting. Yeah, and if we fix the problem, then we can't complain that the problem exists to our mailing list and our fundraising base, which is what's happening with a lot of this right now. Let's just be adults here. Um, election denialism or whatever you want to call it, there's good business there. There's good fundraising there. And there's a reason these people that can get close and not win, they file court injunctions at certain times. They file court injunctions at certain times. They have certifications at certain times. They know how to do it without legally getting in trouble. This is a business now inside the political realm. Let's just call it what it is. For sure. I mean, consultants, pundits, politicians, they'll make a lot of money talking about stolen elections. And 
I want to point out that every cycle, it's whatever party is sort of the most scared of losing power. So this particular cycle, the Democrats are very scared of, of losing their grip, of losing their majority. And you actually saw Hillary Clinton put out this fundraising video talking about how in 2024, there was going to have, they were planning a coup uh, that that the Republican, this MAGA fascistic base was planning this coup. And uh, let's see, uh, she's actually got an initiative now called Crush the Coup, which sounds suspiciously like Stop the Steal, doesn't it? Yeah, see, sloganeering always does it when you do that, especially when you project out. And we don't even know who the candidates are going to be, although we can kind of guess. Uh, Amanda Griffiths joining us. You touch on a couple of things here. You touch on one thing that I actually struggle. Look, look, let's just do some grown folk talk here. I struggle with this particular part that you touched on on your base. What do we do with long shot candidates from either third parties or independents that make it on the ballot? They do everything they're supposed to do. And we'll talk about ballot access in a minute. You also touch on that. I struggle with this because at one point I'm like, yeah, if they cover their bases, they do everything right. They get on the ballot. But I also understand the argument of like, look, we got two people that can win and and a couple percentage point. Look, I've got a friend of mine in West Virginia, won her house of delegates seats by 56 votes. Okay. Mm -hmm. These things really matter when you get a tight race and you've got two people that are clearly ahead and you can have somebody playing the spoiler role. You argue, you talk about both sides of it, that it's a part of democracy, but there is a spoiler role involved. What do we do with that? Because I struggle with that one. I'm not sure what exactly to do with that sometimes because it kind of crosses a couple different streams. Well, nobody likes a spoiler, especially when you've got a candidate for whom you're rooting, right? And and do you think that the spoiler is just there to steal votes? Well, that's difficult, right? Uh, that the spoiler is just there to sabotage your guy. This recently happened very publicly uh, in Georgia with the Georgia runoff uh, between Walker and Warnock. There was a libertarian named Chase Oliver who uh, got about 2% of the Georgia vote and then Georgia, of course, went to a runoff. Now, was it Georgia's, or rather, was it Chase Oliver's fault that we had this runoff and that we had this runoff election? Absolutely not. No one would, ha would have heard of Chase Oliver. No one would have voted for Chase Oliver if Chase Oliver hadn't been offering some sort of alternative that neither Walker nor Warnock were able to provide. So what needs to happen when you see what these so-called spoiler candidates is both parties that are part of the more major party system, Republicans, Democrats, need to take a look and ask, what is so appealing about this, about this figure? What's so appealing about this, um, this figure that is getting people to deviate from either my team or the other guy's team or come out for the first time and take away so it's you know so that that's the viewpoint take away some of my votes that i'm trying to court and when republicans and democrats do this right as they have what you see happening is they do get a lot of that other more so-called independent base third party base coming over when republicans or democrats take on some part of that 
other party's platform. Uh, Republicans have done that or tried to do that with immigration. Uh, Democrats have been very successful doing this with um, with marijuana legalization. Uh, and I'm speaking in terms of libertarians here, but obviously we can talk about Green Party. We can even talk about democratic socialists. I have no idea whether I would have voted for this third party candidate. But what I can tell you is that, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a Jill Stein, whether we're talking about a Bernie Sanders, whether we're talking about a Gary Johnson, if enough people had been satisfied with either major party candidate, you wouldn't have a problem. So I don't understand how libertarians and all these third party candidates are huge jokes until they take a little percentage of the vote to which you think you were entitled, and all of a sudden they are election saboteurs and thieves of democracy, which last I checked required a little something called pluralism. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. Okay, so the counter argument is going to be, well, they've got built-in disadvantages, and there's truth to that. You touched on it. This Tennessee example that you used, we've talked about this one on the show. This is one of the more egregious ones mm. where uh, major party Republican Democrats, they need 25 signatures for a ballot, but any kind of an independent or third party needs 56,000. That's a little more egregious than most places have, but it is true. There is access thing. Now, I don't think we need 80 people on the ballot every time we have an election. What's a reasonable standard here? Does it, you know, there's not going to be a rise of a major third party anytime soon. Sorry, libertarian fans. You, you guys got to have an adult convention before you get that status. But what's a reasonable gatekeeping here that it doesn't waste the public's time and the public's money, but it also makes elections more accessible? Find me some middle ground here somewhere, something common sense. Sure. And we should have standards, right? I don't I don't think there should be a free for all. I shouldn't just be able to climb on a ballot and and, and run for office. Uh, so there's a group for in Tennessee called For All Tennessee. And their website is, and no, I don't work for them, they're not paying me for the 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 uh you know the F-O-R-A-L-L-T-N.org. And they have a bunch of fantastic ballot proposals where they basically say, we just want to bring this a little bit more into line. You know, we want to be able to have, let's say, you know, a, a smaller percentage of people perhaps supporting a candidate, perhaps polling for a candidate, smaller percentage of signatures on the ballot or sorry, that um, on canvassing, that is more commensurate with what is required to get a Republican or a Democrat on the ballot. 
that's all normal. We can look at perhaps fundraising numbers. We can have a lot of redundancy built in. So several different standards from what you can pick and choose. One particularly strange, and this is a, a this is not a, a public forum, this is more private, uh, but with the debate system. This is particularly strange the way this is run. Uh, now this is when you, we talk about the bipartisan debates, these, these you know, political debates. The people who coordinate these, essentially they will say, well, you have to score a certain percentage of, of favorability, you have to have a certain favorability rating in national polls. Uh, but what they qualify as a national poll is any one of the five major network news polls. So you're already, you're already limiting the number of people who can even respond to this poll. So you're already narrowing the base from which you can draw when you're trying to gauge how popular is a given candidate. These are the types of things that are very, very old rules that shouldn't really apply anymore. And yeah, when we're, when we're talking about um, ballot access, uh, particularly with, uh, with Tennessee. So yes, right now you need uh, 25 signatures to run if you're a Republican, 25 to run if you're a Democrat, 25 to run weirdly if you're a registered independent but 56,082 if you're a third party i don't really understand the difference between third party and independent but the problem with just declaring oneself an independent if you're part of a legitimate third party is that then you are abdicating a little bit of your ability to make voters immediately aware what you stand for. Is there an L next to your name? Is there a G next to your name? Is there a DSA next to your name? That I isn't gonna say much. And so we need to re, we, we need to rework these standards that have to do, you know, to, so that they're a little bit more in line with prior voting history, with signatures, all of that. Yeah, Amanda, Amanda Griffiths joining us. You talk about things like signatures. You talk about things like canvassing. These are nuts and bolts of politics that we don't talk about because they don't trend. We don't, I mean, we've gotten to where now, you know, social media people like their little election maps and things like that. And that's great because that raises awareness. I think it does have an educational value to it. But the nuts and bolts of elections don't get talked about enough. And this is one of those things where the letters of the law really matter and we don't focus on it like the thing in Tennessee. I bet you a lot of people in Tennessee don't even know that exists. Um, I bet most voters probably don't know what the ballot access requirements in their municipalities are for local, state and federal elections. And that all three of those can be very different in the exact same voting area. Uh, these things are really complicated. How do we raise the education level towards the election nuts and bolts, things like that, like how to get on a ballot, how people qualify so they don't just get stuck up with, oh, this person should run for office and you wind up with a candidate that's unqualified or otherwise unworthy. This seems like an important piece of education for an informed electorate to have. How do we get there? Uh, you know, I, I feel I feel like Ben Sass and I we just go back to civics class. We need Schoolhouse Rock. 
uh, we need a schoolhouse rock song. But who's going to teach it? <laughs> Not to cut you off, but my parent, my, look, my dad was a teacher and he always said the problem with student teachers is they're going to become teachers. Cause he taught a lot of the student teachers and like the problem with these students is sometimes they're going to be a teacher. It's like, you know, there's a trickle down effect to something being bad. It's like the people now don't know how to do it. How are they going to teach somebody else something they don't know? And I just, I and just not to be a cynic, final, but that's no, I just the, finished, I just submitted final grades too. So I feel personally attacked right now as a, as a student teacher, but yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely didn't say I was wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely right that uh that it is difficult and i mean you can't just kick a civics class but uh you know part of it is that there are policy changes and the policy changes can raise awareness a little bit so again we'll go back to for all tennessee because you said correctly andrew tennessee is one of the most egregious examples of of, of you know uh, ballot access disproportionality uh, in, in the country. So what For All Tennessee proposes is that, first of all, there is, they propose reducing the retention requirement to keep ballot access from 5% of votes in a statewide race to 1% of votes for, uh, for third party or minor party candidates. Uh, anything that you do that is going to allow for greater access to ballots, for voters to feel more represented by a greater swath of people and to voice the fact that they have this, this representative alternative. Anything you do there is automatically going to make people care more about it. And yes, we do need fewer signatures. 0.5% of the votes in the last governor's race, say, if we've got gubernatorial candidates. Right now, it's 2.5%. So that can be curtailed. That can be cut down. And this would also lower the cost to taxpayers. So again, I'm reading directly now from the For All Tennessee website. Tennessee law states that any party who achieves over 5% must participate in a taxpayer-funded primary. And this bill actually increases that threshold to 25%, which reduces the cost, makes it more difficult for all candidates uh, to, uh, to, to, you, to get in that taxpayer-funded primary. So once again, just making it a more level playing field once again, this differential between the label independent and label third party, I think we need to do away with entirely. Because when you look now at polling numbers, we actually have a plurality of people, more people than Republicans or Democrats, are now saying, more voters are now saying, I don't align with either party. Now, maybe they're saying I'm a libertarian. Maybe they're saying I'm Green Party. Maybe they're saying I am independent. Maybe they're saying I'm a socialist. We don't know. But people are saying, I am X, and they're getting lumped into this category called independent. I'll tell you what, Justin Amash is not the same type of independent as Bernie Sanders. It's not the same type of independent as Jill Stein. So when we talk about how a plurality of Americans now are actually independent voters, I like to think all Americans are independent voters. We need to be defining what that means, not just third party, not just not this thing that I know or think that I understand, but rather, okay, 
what do they stand for? And then what do they believe in? And then major parties can look at that and say, well, how do we integrate some of these popular initiatives into our platforms? That's what a successful postmortem does. Yeah, Amanda Griffiths, postmortem, premortem, if you're going to defend democracy, you need to understand at least how it works. Yes. And we seem to be failing that standard right now. Uh, Amanda, always enjoy talking to you. Let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece. so Everybody can find it. Let folks know how they can follow and keep up with all the very many things you're doing because you're all over the place nowadays. I, I travel well, and, and, and physically do geographically. Yeah, my gosh, traveling, traveling, moving. Uh, people can find me on the twitter.com uh, at Ajax the Griff, A J X T H E G R I F F. And I have just found out that I have progressed from being a Young Voices contributor to a Young Voices writer. So I will be writing for the wonderful uh, organization Young Voices. Or I think it's, is it .org or .com? No, they keep changing. We're an org. We're an on org. org. All right, all right. We're so a nonprofit. Young, We're an org. So you can check out my page, youngvoices.org. You can see all the uh, all the media hits and all the articles that I've been working on. I always love to talk. Uh, so you go follow me on Twitter. And I'm, I'm working on getting the Instagram down. Uh, but that's a work in progress. So we'll see. Yeah. You can have at that Instagram. I'm going to stick with Twitter to the bitter end. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, our very good friend, Young Voices contributor, doing exciting stuff, including a cross-country move somewhere in here in her many, Ooh, many travels. To Madison, uh, my friends. Uh, in the wintertime. Good luck. I, uh, I lived in Chicago. I, it's all right. I'm battle-hardened. I've got... I, I'm. Some somewhere in here, I've got uh, I've got reserves. I did Chicago and D.C. in back to back weeks, and it was colder in D.C., so I must have got lucky. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, we so appreciate you. Also, going to have you on the long form podcast back. We're going to talk some more communism and classicalism and some other great stuff. Look You're the best, my friend. Thanks for coming back. You're wonderful, Andrew, and happy holiday season to you and your listeners. You too. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's returning. He's out in Utah. He does comms and stuff. Talks a lot about conservation and environmental things. Micah Safeston, how are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program. Doing well, Andrew. Good to be back. Great to have you back. Okay, let's let I I like to start with just base stuff when we talk, and I don't mean base like the kids use it because I still don't understand what is and isn't base these days. I just mean like bases and foundational. Okay, you've been writing about the cultivated meat, not plant-based meat. Right. I, I'm not against the idea. I like the idea. I understand the concept. I think the concept even has a noble goal for what it's worth that, you know, what they're trying to accomplish at the same time. I think we're getting a little carried away with this. We have thousands and thousands of years of human data on how to do good husband, animal husbandry. We have good data on what is and isn't sustainable farming and sustainable agriculture and sustainable raising of food products via animals. We know what works and doesn't work. Why are we banging our head against the wall when it comes to things like plant-based meat and acting like it has to be either or here? 
Well, what's definitely the case is that uh, traditional traditional animal husbandry, traditional agricultural practices, uh, they do they do have quite a toll, and they they are um, very inefficient compared to the other foods that we eat. You know, any other uh, you know our, our fruits and vegetables are far more efficient when it comes to calories in and calories out, um, and so that. That is certainly like a, a something I think we do need to take seriously. That the fact that uh, you know, 25 calories for one calorie of of beef, that's pretty high. And so, uh, and then when you look at the the methane emissions and the the costs it has on on just the the, the land that animals are grown upon, um, and then you know something I write a lot about is water water use and and we have to. To, to feed these animals, we, well, these animals that we eat, we have to feed them something. So we have to grow uh, plants that that they eat that we don't even we don't consume at all. And so it's it is very inefficient. So they're, they're doing there's uh, it, there's it's ripe for innovation. And so um, I, I applaud anyone who's who's looking to, uh, to to innovate in this this area. But a lot of people are doing it the wrong way, looking at the wrong, the wrong things, um, with these plant-based based meats. Micah Safeson joining us. Let's just get right to the brass tacks of it. This is a business thing. They are doing this not only for altruistic reasons, but this is a growing business sector. People want to either because of dietary reasons, religious reasons. Some people want to be you know, vegetarian or vegan for whatever reason. That's fine. They should have options. Um, but this is a business model. Right now, this is a very expensive business model. And that's part of the discussion that we're having when we get into how this is getting into the market, the market penetration source like that. You just can't get around the cost of this at the moment, can you? No, it's, that's right. You, uh, there, it's, there's a lot of money in it. Um, you know, in, in, in agriculture, particularly uh, meat production, um, it's something like four companies Four meatpacking companies control a, a majority of, of the industry, and um, that, like I said, it's ripe for innovation and ripe for ripe for disruption. You make an interesting. You wrote about this in Real Clear Energy. We're going to link to the piece. You made an interesting comparison here between the plant-based meats, the impossible meats, these things, whatever you want to call them, and televisions. Right. So. Uh, it, it is it is something of a, a a leap there. So, what really what I'm actually comparing is cultivated meats, not plant based meats. So, plant based meats are are I call them high tech veggie burgers. Uh, they're not veggie burgers that you would usually think of. Um, veggie burgers traditionally made with like you you take a bite and there's like a, a bean in there. Um, plant based meats are like the, these impossible meats, and they're not good. I've I've had them and they're they're not good and some people disagree with me but I, most people do not uh, and but what what I was comparing to televisions was cultivated meat which is different than both veggie burgers and plant-based meats cultivated meat is meat that is grown in a lab it it is it is uh, of its chemical makeup indistinguishable from traditional meat. Um, it's made with proteins, lipids, the, the same things that that make up, you know, the, the beef that we eat, beef, chicken, pork. Um, and it, it what what how they do it is they take a small biopsy of a living animal, 
so we'll say a, a cow and they then take that and I, i've read that it's it's often the size of a sesame seed and they literally put that in enzymes and they form meat out of it and it, it grows in a lab and it's very expensive um something like between $2,400 a pound. I mean, that's just absurd. Um, there's no way you can you can bring that to market. Uh, but the point I make about the televisions is that uh, it, in the year 2000, a television, a 50-inch flat screen TV cost $20,000. Today, a 50-inch flat screen TV costs about $250. And that, that price reduction came over time as... as you know, uh, early adopters, eccentric, wealthy people, um, investors, they, they invest in this product and allow it to scale. And my point was that while cultivated meat is, is prohibitively expensive, there is time for, for it to scale. And it needs, just needs to be given the opportunity to scale. And my claim is that cultivated meat is a answer than impossible because of that. Um, impossible meat is far less expensive, but it's it's unpalatable. Cultivated meat has the potential of being palatable, and that has the potential of being affordable. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, Micah Station joining us. What about, you just mentioned it, the impossible stuff has a bad reputation with some folks, earned, not earned. I understand some people like it, but, you know, that's right. okay. Some people don't understand the greatness of ketchup and cheese on a hot dog, too. You know, there's wrong people walking the earth. 
That's what I like. Sorry. But like like I just did, I mixed the two up. Is there going to be a barrier here because the one became before the other and it's having some issues in the market, at least getting stereotyped of nothing else? I think that's a fair way to put it. If it's getting stereotyped a certain way, now the cultivated is coming. You just had to explain it to me for four or five minutes. That's going to be a barrier to marketplace besides just the price, right? I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, people will, as cultivated meat does uh, become more available as it scales up, um, there will be an association of cultivated meat with impossible meat or you know, plant-based meat, really. And and I think that that I hope that as uh, more people are able to actually try it that that challenge will be overcome and I, I think it can i hope it can um i'll admit i've never tried cultivated meat uh, i i can't afford a 600 dollars hamburger um but i'm confident that the market is able to produce something that is equivalent and possibly even better than than a traditional hamburger using cultivated meat um and, and that to me makes more sense to uh, to, to, as a way to solve some of the challenges and, and the, the emissions that agriculture takes on, on the planet um, rather than, than these plant-based alternatives, which are just not good. And uh, the, the kinda, it kind of comes back to this point that I often find myself coming back to that we, we don't have to sacrifice every good thing in our life to, uh, to, to solve some of the environmental problems that we have around us. And often the, the, the solutions actually don't involve those sacrifices at all. And that's, that this is an example of that. Yeah. Micah Safeson joining us. Okay. We talked about the cost. We talked about the science of it. There's a big cultural component here. Let's, let's just be honest about this thing. Like I'm a big foodie. I'm all for market innovation. I'm for progress. I understand the problems that we're trying to solve here at the same time, me, human being, Andy, you know, I grew up in a culture. I'm from West Virginia. It's a big hunting thing. Like to this day, they get a week off for Thanksgiving. It's not for Thanksgiving. It's for deer season, but they put Thanksgiving because nobody would believe that you get a week off for deer season, but you got to, because nobody's coming to school, you know, hunting and fishing culture, kill it, process it, eat it. That's just kind of ingrained. Even people that don't hunt anymore, live it. It's just kind of an ingrained thing, especially in the American culture of eating meat. Now, I understand, again, people have religious reasons or moral reasons. I completely respect people that have moral reasons over not wanting, you know, the slaughter of animals. I get it. I mean, look, I've been on the kill floor at Smithfield plant. I get it. That's that that can make anybody a vegetarian. I understand it. At the same time, foodie me, cultural. There's a lot of people that probably feel that way to some degree of like, look, meat comes from an animal and that's that. Otherwise, you should never call it meat. We've seen this with the milk debate of labeling milk and oat milk and things like this. That's a cultural part of this argument besides the policy that you're going to have to handle, right? That's, that's exactly right. I, and, and hunting is, a, is an interesting rebuttal because um, hunting, I don't think it could be said that hunting has a, is nearly as a drastic uh, effect on the environment as traditional agriculture does. And, so, and, and I certainly don't want to prevent anyone from hunting and I also don't think that traditional agriculture will ever completely go away, nor do I think it should. Um, when, when you look at, when you really look at the, the uh, what these companies are able to do with the cultivated meat, 
it really kind of it kind of uh, the best they can do right now is basically replicating ground beef or or chicken and uh, or pork, and a lot of the high quality cuts of meat can't replicate that. And maybe someday they will, but they can't right now. And for that reason, just that reason alone, um, traditional agriculture is is certainly here to stay to some extent or another. But when when you look at the scale of traditional agriculture today. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of uh, uh, trimming the fat, no pun intended, that that can occur, that can um, really take uh, the burden off of the environment. Um, and while at the same time maintaining a, 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 a supply to, to meet the, the demand for, for meat. Um, and that's that's really what I'm I'm looking for is, is to have kind of a diversified uh a diversified world and when it comes to to where we get our meat from and you know we we could hunt we could have traditional agriculture but then we also have new option um and and maybe plant-based plant-based meats will improve and maybe someday those will um become appetizing but i'm i'm less confident in that i'm more confident in the cultivated meat yeah micah safeston joining us you just brought it up so let's discuss that part of it though is how do we make this into a thing where it's an all of the above and not an either or like we kind of started with? Because what happens is somebody will get on like the impossible burger or they'll get onto the cultivated meat. You can see the potential there and you're like, oh, well, this will just complete, completely replace the other thing. So let's tilt the scales in favor of this with regulation or so on and so forth. And I don't think that's the right way to go here, because, again, if we can innovate in the making of meat, there's been great innovation in the way we raise and process and do animal husbandry and animal processing for meat and for food stuffs. You know, there's you can innovate that as well, just like we can innovate agriculture. We can innovate in all the areas at the same time and raise all boats here. How do we do that so that it doesn't become this dangling thing of like, oh, we're just going to get rid of all this other thing where, again, American privilege, maybe America can do that in a couple other countries. Poor countries need their animal husbandry to survive, yeah. not just, yeah. but to survive. How do we prevent that conversation going off the rails like we've seen with some other innovations when it's come to environmental things where you start leaving the developing world behind and even start causing harm to it? I mean, it's kind of a cliche answer, but I, I think competition is really kind of a, a key is, is allowing for these different uh, meat sources to compete with each other. I mentioned earlier, there's something like four major meat packing companies in the world that control something like 75% of, of all meat production. Um, you mentioned Smithfield Foods, Tyson, um, JBS is another one. I can't remember the last one. But uh, uh, that's not very much competition. Uh, we, we need to to find policies that will allow for, for greater competition. And that actually means, in a, to a great degree, deregulating a lot of the traditional agricultural operations um, and allowing for for more competition from from smaller producers now initially that that will actually uh probably have you know probably harm the environment uh, at first because as you open up traditional agriculture you're opening up you know the potential for more for more uh, environmental impacts but i think in the long term you 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 then are incentivizing innovation and this cultivated meat is the perfect example of that innovation. 
So we need to, to and, and that's really what competition does is it incentivizes innovation. And that's what we, we don't see that very much in, in agriculture today. Um, not just in, in the, in, in meat, but also in, uh, in, you know, crop growth. Uh, there's, there's very little competition. There's very little innovation. And a lot of that stems for how we, you know, how we treat our water. Our, our water is, is often subsidized and, and that's the most important resource that goes into agriculture. And, you know, so these things all kind of run together. Yeah, Micah Safeston, one of the reasons for that, and you just kind of hinted at it, there's been great consolidation in agriculture, both in animal agriculture and food agriculture. Bigger and bigger companies are taking up more and more of it. There's less mom and pops. There's less family-run farms, things like that. That's been the trend for several, several years. There's a lot of reasons for that. So we have this massive consolidation of traditional agriculture down to one by its definition something that's being technologically innovated is going to come from one or two sources and it's going to be a top down into the market type thing so is there going to be a danger of that becoming another funnel thing of this is just going to be through one or two companies or do you see more innovation where once it gets to the market then more people could pick up on this product and spread it more widely because like you know meat has a lot of variations to it you just mentioned it there's ground meat there's steak, there's cut, you know, I'm a foodie, so I could talk a whole different, you know, there, you say yeah. steak, I think 30 different things, right? Yeah. Is that going to be an issue where it's just going to be like the impossible thing? They do the one thing and stop, or does it get into the marketplace and expand through other variables you think? Well, I think that if we do it the right way, it would be more of a bottom up thing. Uh, you, we allow for more competition in agriculture. And, and if, if we allow for more competition in agriculture, then I think we we make room for these long-term investments. It's interesting. Uh, JBS, I think, is the biggest meat producer, I think, in the world. It's, it's a Brazilian uh, company, and they actually were producing this, these plant-based meats. They wanted to get into this, and, but they recently shut down their operation. And I, the reason for that is it wasn't making money, but I think they did it because they felt the pressure, the, the kind of the social pressure to, to get into this. And then it fizzled because it didn't work. It wasn't a good idea. So I, I guess my point is that we, these changes shouldn't be made as like social justice movements where we pressure these corporations to implement these new kinds of, of, of innovations because um, they, they don't work. They, they're, they usually uh, are not that committed to them. And uh, they, it's often just kind of a form of virtue signaling open up competition, allow for, for more competition in agriculture. That may initially mean that, that we are actually increasing the environmental impact. But over the long term, I think it actually, it, it will uh, incentivize these innovations from the bottom up. So I, I would say it's the second thing. Uh, if we do it the right way, it's the second thing, it, it, where it, it kind of the bottom up, um, these long-term investments that that a a startup corporation might make, um, saying, "Hey, we 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 can't compete with Smithfield 
on uh, on on their beef. We we just can't we can't make those profit margins that Smithfield has because they're two hundred times larger than we are. But what we can do is we can produce this cultivated meat uh, because we've we've invested some time and energy and money into it, and then as it grows, uh, the the early adopters, early investors will allow this this new product to become more affordable uh, to, to the general public. Micah Safeston. Okay, you end your piece with the same place. I'm going to end our discussion on this because what really matters is if the consumers in the marketplace don't want this, don't accept it, and don't like it, it's not all the rest of this isn't going to matter in the long run. They got to make it taste. Look, I'm a foodie guy. If if it don't taste like steak and I'm wanting steak, it ain't going to work. That's just the, the blunt part of it. Um, how do they avoid kind of the fobbles that some of the impossible meats have got? Like you said, it's just unpalatable to a large segment of people. How do they avoid that? Because when you just start out calling, first of all, they're going to have to brand it something other than cultivated meat because that yeah. ain't going to fly. Yeah. But what do you think that looks like if it's to be successful? And Because, you know, look, even if you watch a Food Network show where they're judging, they're like, look, it don't taste looking it tastes right and doesn't smell right that it you know nobody's going to even get as far as eating the thing how do we go from there on that when they get this stuff to the market well, that's an interesting question um i think that there's probably kind of a tightrope they have to walk where they they have to uh make it make it taste like traditional meat it needs to taste like you know the the cultivated beef needs to taste like beef cultivated chicken needs to taste like chicken but at the same time, I I don't think you can you can just say that it's beef or just say that it's chicken because um, it's it's not exactly that. And so I, I I think that you have to kind of market it as an environmentally friendly alternative. Um, I don't think they should market it as a healthier alternative because um, it's not. It's it's not if it's if it's going to taste like beef, it's going to have the same uh, fat content as as beef. Um, you know, certainly there would be a, a leaner uh, options and and you know fattier options, but uh, the I, I think that uh, you kind of have to walk that tightrope of of being very similar to the real thing, but at the same time not not pretending that it's the real thing, um, and maybe maybe I think focusing on on the environmental impacts because for a lot of people that's a big deal and they they want to to do a, do their part to help the environment and um, it, it, buying and investing in, in cultivated meat is is a really good way to do that because the the impacts of agriculture on the environment are uh, are pretty substantial any idea on a better branding name than cultivated meat you got any idea there pitch uh, me something oh i think uh uh by the way, while we're on the I, subject, naming the naming the plant-based stuff impossible was a bad marketing move just from the go. 
just what don't 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 start out with something that's a negative connotation word of impossible that was a bad idea i understand what they were shooting yeah. for but that was a bad idea from the go so give yeah. me something good here what do you got oh that's a good question um i mean i think something like uh like meat or um i mean i think i think you probably have to to maybe break it down to beef chicken and pork um uh, maybe new beef or new chicken uh, new is 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 i think probably has has more positive connotations cultivated just sounds yeah that sounds too sterile uh, i agree no, that, that, scientific that too. maybe go back to dogma where they did the catholicism wow we can do meat wow or something like that uh, yeah. I don't know. we'll yeah. make it camp maybe make it campy and a cult thing and see if it grows from there micah safeson uh fun conversation because this is something that's going to pop up later and we get a little bit ahead of it let folks know where they can keep up with you what you're doing how they can follow you uh and what you normally eat on an average weekday since none of us can afford this stuff just quite yet <laughs> yeah uh, you can just follow me on twitter uh, micah r safeston uh, s-a-f-s-t-e-n um just find me there i i mostly i, I write about water in the west and uh, the, the water uh, the water shortage what the drought uh, and and free market solutions to that um and i mean shoot what i eat uh i mean one thing i i'm really curious and i think this is is uh cult cultivated meat will probably come for this last but i eat a lot of eggs and uh i i i have a hard time seeing how they could replicate that um they're just about perfect so they're, they'll be fine until they figure out whether they want to do the chicken first or the egg first. There you go. Yeah. I'm sorry. I couldn't help him. Micah Safeson, thanks for the time, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.